Coming up on Mayo Clinic Q&A. Emotionally, we all are ready for this to be over and done with. But it's not. It's just not. Currently, there is a slowdown in the vaccination rates across the country, which could lead to a surge of virus activity. Remember, we saw low levels last summer, only to surge again in the fall. The difference this fall is we may be facing a variant over 100% more transmissible than the original virus. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka. We're recording this podcast on Monday, June the 21st, 2021. Vaccinations continue to be our best defense against COVID-19, and the United States is working hard to reach President Biden's goal of vaccinating 70% of adult Americans by July 4th. In the meantime, we have a lot of other information to cover. Uh, some interesting things in the news, as well as some questions from our listeners. Here to help us do this today is Dr. Greg Poland, virologist, infectious disease expert, and vaccine expert from Mayo Clinic. Welcome back, Greg. Good morning, and happy belated Father's Day to all our fathers and sons out there. Yes, happy Father's Day to you, Greg. Thank Did you. you have a nice day? That was wonderful, wonderful. Uh, Wonderful. Good. Well, I have a big list for you today, so I think we're going to jump right in. And the first thing I want to ask you about is that Greek alphabet soup we were talking about last week. What's up with deltas and lambdas, etc.? We have actually somebody asked me what happens when we run out of Greek letters. <laughs> so I know, hope not. What, what the WHO did uh, about the first or second week in June is to say, rather than talk about these variants by the country they were first identified in, as if it, they were the cause of it, let's instead use letters of the Greek alphabet, somewhat similar to the way hurricanes are given names. So uh, they've been given those uh, designations. Alpha is the so-called UK variant. Beta is the South African variant. Gamma is the P1 Brazilian variant. Delta is the Indian variant. Uh, and we have a number of other ones. One of the ones we're keeping an eye out as a variant of interest is the new Lambda variant, which is coming out of uh, and first identified in Peru. We don't know a lot about it yet, but I think the Delta variant has really galvanized the attention of uh, scientists and those of us who study this, uh, when we, even compared to a week ago when we last spoke, we've gone from two and a half percent to last week 10 percent to this week 31 percent of the genomic sequences isolated from patients with COVID in the U.S. are now the Delta variant. Wow. So just as we have predicted, this summer and fall is going to be a remarkably dangerous period for people who have not been vaccinated. Uh, we are seeing a surge again in hospitalizations in mm. the UK, uh, again, uh, because of the Delta variant and people who have not been vaccinated or who only got one dose of vaccine. So this is a really critical message for the public to hear. We are stalled in vaccination rates. Um, yeah, how we'll, is that going, Greg? Where are we with that? We'll, we'll reach 70% uh, in all but maybe 
25, 30 states. That, that's still, you know, half or so yeah, uh, of them. Uh, but nothing really has worked. Even the incentives, uh, they boosted immunization rates for a week or two, then plummeted back down. And, and it just, uh, it, I think it exposes that there's just a proportion of the population who is so hesitant, they won't get vaccines, even in the case of, or in the face of these variants, that's going to be very dangerous for them. Hmm. Greg, is it known how many of the individuals who uh, aren't taking this vaccine are individuals who don't take any vaccines, or is that that's probably not known. Yeah, I, I don't think we really know. I mean, naturally, there'll be some carryover from mm -hmm. people who are hesitant about vaccines we've had for decades uh, to be hesitant against a vaccine we've only had a year or so. But I don't think any exact numbers are known. Okay. Um, tell us a little bit about reinfection rates at this point. We actually do have some data on reinfection rates that were published by Clinical Infectious Disease Journal this past week. They studied a little over 9,000 subjects who had previously had COVID, had at least uh, two negative COVID tests, so they resolved their infection, mm -hmm. and then subsequently uh, developed COVID. This was 62 clinical centers across the U.S. So what did they find? About 0.7% of them got reinfected in a mean of about 116 days. Now, this is important because a number of studies like this have been done, including the so-called SIREN study in the UK with healthcare workers. And those that collection of studies have shown somewhere between 0.5 and about 2.5% of people who develop COVID subsequently get reinfected. Now they tend not to have as many symptoms, but you don't always know. In the study we're talking about, two of those patients died, even though they had previously had COVID. The risk factors are what you would expect, but in particular, patients who had asthma or who were smokers were at particularly higher risk of reinfection. So this is, I think, really important for people to understand. Uh, I should say, by the way, that the mean number of days after which they got reinfected somewhat surprised me. It was 116 days. Yeah. So we have told people, you know, if you develop COVID, we wait about 90 days. Other people are thinking, well, I'm protected for a year or two or three. I mean, I hear all kinds of things for which there are no data. Here is a collection of data now showing that, as I say, between uh, 0.5 and 2.5% of people previously infected are getting infected. Now, there's one proviso here. Those studies were done when the Delta variant was not circulating. And it's something, uh, Helena, you and I have taken pains to explain to our listeners, the data keep moving on. So what was known a year ago right. or six months ago 
Don't depend on that. It can change as these new variants arise. So I expect that that rate will be even higher as we get into a higher Delta uh, circulation. Greg, had any of these individuals been vaccinated between the first infection and the secondary infection? No, these th in this particular study, no. But in some of the other studies, uh, people had gotten at least one dose. And that raises an interesting point. We know that the mRNA vaccines after one dose are only about 30% effective against the Delta variant. Two doses get you up in the high 80 plus percent protection. Oh, wow. Quite a difference. So, so two doses makes a big difference. That's, that's a huge difference. Indeed. Greg, I had seen something about a pill for treatment. Yeah, uh, that's for COVID. Good. Yeah, Merck, actually what has happened is that the government has released, I think it's $3.2 billion to incentivize uh, manufacturers to work on antiviral development. And in particular, I would say probably Merck is the furthest ahead with an, an oral antiviral uh, called molnupiravir. Um, so they'll take it, I think, for five days is the idea. They are, they, I say they're farther ahead because they're in phase three trials. These trials are showing that if you can give them the oral antiviral soon after developing symptoms, something like 72 hours or so, much like is the case for antivirals with flu, um, you dramatically decrease viral load. And now what this study is attempting to determine is, do you decrease the number of people who get sick from this, who get hospitalized, et cetera? So that's good news going forward. And where in the world do they come up with these names for these <laughs> medications? It is, it's, it is a bit frustrating. In fact, you'll even hear physicians pronounce them differently. <laughs> Last week, Greg, we had touched on the um, CDC meeting that was to occur about myocarditis in uh, kids who received yeah. the vaccine. What's an update on that? So that meeting got canceled because on Thursday, I guess it was, President Biden had signed the Juneteenth holiday, mm -hmm. and that took place on Friday. So the CDC oh, sure. meeting now is going to occur um, this coming week. But we do have some data that's important, uh, and, and I think uh, worthy of talking about. So uh, in the U.S., and, and we explained this once, but it's worth saying again, we know about uh, 789 cases of myopericarditis that have been reported. Now, not all of those will be even associated with vaccine. When you go and study those, you'll find somebody reported it two weeks before they ever got a dose of, of vaccine. So you, you have to do a lot of study of that. Nonetheless, uh, in fact, I just checked on the data. Um, most of these are occurring in males, mostly young males. They tend to occur predominantly after the second dose. There are cases that have occurred after the first dose. My guess is that this is again gonna represent a so-called off-target inflammatory condition, but there are other hypotheses out there. Um, about uh, 470 of these cases have been below the age of 30. Now, in 285 of these cases, we have a known outcome. So 285 that occurred after getting vaccine, we know what happened. Of those 285, 
270 resolved spontaneously, very quickly in a few days. 15 were still in the hospital and three in the ICU. None have died. Um, there's a case report that involves uh, Mayo Clinic, in fact, where we've had a case. And among those uh, seven or eight subjects, all of them recovered very quickly. Um, and so, you know, this is an ongoing research study to understand what exactly is the relationship? Are there risk factors for it? Having said all of that, one thing we do know is that the risk of myocarditis is higher in people who get COVID infection. So very likely this will turn out to be one of those decisions we've talked about throughout the year where you're balancing risk and benefit. There's not a no risk option here. It's which is less risky and offers the most benefit. And I'm virtually certain, even in younger people, that this will turn out to be get the vaccine, but we have to stay tuned for that. Yeah, stay tuned. More to hear about that coming up. Uh, Greg, I had seen an interesting article about sperm quality. Now, in the past, we had talked quite a bit about whether it was safe for women who are pregnant or hoping to become pregnant to receive COVID-19 vaccines. And you've stated that that it is uh, safe. Yeah. And um, I'm wondering about sperm quality. There's been some yeah. question about that. Yeah, so a very interesting study uh, in, in JAMA. And you're right uh, that there have been questions raised about that. There have been menstrual irregularities associated with vaccination in women. They resolve after one or two cycles. In men, the question was raised, could the vaccine be altering sperm quality? We know that it does, and dramatically so, with COVID infection. But what about vaccination? So they reported a fairly small study, 45 men uh, at University of Miami between the ages of 18 and 50. Um, they, did a, they did a sperm count and, and quality indicators before the first dose and about 70 days after the second dose. Ironically, what they found was a statistically significant improvement in sperm counts and sperm uh, semen quality. So in fact, no detriment, and if anything, a betterment. Now, do I think that's real or coincidental? I'm guessing it's coincidental, but it did not show any adverse effect, which is important for those that are doing family planning. That is really interesting. Greg, I want to get on to a couple of questions from our questions from our listener mailbag. They always give you oh um, <laughs> some, some very thoughtful questions yes. and uh, kind of put you on the spot. Yeah. So this first individual states that uh, her husband is going to be expected to return to the office to work in the coming weeks. Their children are not old enough to receive the COVID-19 vaccination. And uh, the husband and wife are both vaccinated, but concerned about the possibility of him bringing infection home from the office and perhaps uh, potentially exposing their children. What would you say about that? Yeah, so, you know, it, 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 there is no black and white answer here. If he and his wife are healthy and got both doses of their vaccine, the chance of them spreading it to a child is really, really low. It's not zero, it's never zero, 
We don't know precisely with the Delta variant, um, but I would say that it's safe for them to be around their children, assuming they were healthy and that they got two doses of vaccine. I would not um, uh, feel like I had to wear masks at home. Now, I think you said the way the questioner asked is that the husband was going to work and that some were not vaccinated. You know, if he felt more comfortable, he could certainly wear a mask at work when he's indoors with other people. He might not have to when, if he's in a private office, but if they're having committee meetings or something like that, that would be a consideration. All right, our next question is from a private music tutor who sees about 45 students per week. Uh, the, the children are uh, in grades K through 12. Most have switched back to having in-person lessons in his home studio. Um, this person is vaccinated and so are the eligible students, but how long should they continue to mask? Of course, not all of the children are able to get vaccinated now. No. And so what would you advise about um, the safety of uh, not using masks in this situation versus other public situations? So, so I would certainly um, uh, be sure that the piano teacher, I think you said him, uh, that he is vaccinated fully with two doses of vaccine. Once, and assuming he's otherwise healthy, he doesn't really run much of any risk. Now, we are waiting for new CDC guidance in regards to classrooms. We have some guidance on summer camps where the recommendation is continue using masking if they're not vaccinated. So I would say probably what he should do is in when the students are coming into his home, if he wants to just, you know, be sure about protection, have the student wear a mask. He could wear one too, but more important is the student wearing a mask so that they don't, you know, exhale or cough or sneeze virus out if they happen to be infected. Okay. Um, the next listener thanks you for continuing the sessions on COVID-19. Uh, they are much appreciated. <clears throat> They're wondering if overall hospital hospitalizations are decreasing. Does the 25% of hospitalizations uh, being pediatrics represent an increase in the number of pediatric cases? Um, so how are the pediatric cases trending since vaccines have uh, been initiated? That's a, that's a great question. So they were trending upwards and now like all of the caseload in the US, they're trending downward. Nonetheless, because so many adults have gotten vaccinated, what we see is a smaller, per, you know, there's a smaller proportion of susceptible adults, mm -hmm. but a large population of susceptible kids. So we're seeing more kids end up being hospitalized. Now, the concern is what will happen as Delta variant really starts to um, uh, take off in the U.S. CDC did publish a study looking at adolescents anyway, and what they found, they, they were looking at people aged 12 to 17, so we don't know a lot yet about younger that, than that age, and what they found was about one and a half to two per hundred thousand were being hospitalized. Now that's a rate that's still uh, uh, higher um, than flu. In fact, it's about three times oh. higher. It's about 12 and a half times lower than adults. Adults truly do have higher risk. 
But again, even in 12 to 17 year olds, that risk of hospitalization was about threefold higher than with flu. I mention that because I hear people say, oh, it's just the flu. It's nothing right. more than that. Well, that's just not true. Kids do get hospitalized and they do develop complications uh, from COVID. Fortunately, not at the same rate as adults, but still at a concerning rate, particularly for a disease you can prevent. So we'll be looking forward to that age for vaccinations to continue to decrease and hopefully exactly. decrease this as concern as well. Exactly. And, I, and I think by fall time, we will see that, Helena, if those vaccines get emergency use authorization to use in younger than age 12 and picking up the pace of vaccination in kids 12 and older. All right, Greg, our next listener uh, receives the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and has a question about <clears throat> variants. Do we know about the <laughs> efficacy of each individual vaccine regarding the variants? We do, we have a pretty good idea of that. Uh, both from studies in the U.S. and studies in, uh, abroad. Uh, we know that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine do not have quite the same level of protection against symptomatic disease, against the South African uh, and against so-called beta and the Delta variant. However, their efficacy in protecting against death and hospitalization are excellent. So I know this sounds confusing, but when we talk about efficacy, we talk about efficacy against what? Death, hospitalization, symptomatic, mild, asymptomatic, and we talk, we talk about against which variant. So what we can say is the mRNA vaccines uh, in one of the best studies done provided about 88% protection against symptomatic illness against these variants. Now, if you look at the alpha variant and the original variant, it was about 95%. So you see a little bit of a decrement, a little larger decrement, decrement for the adenovirus vectored vaccines. Is it possible that this individual who received a Johnson & Johnson vaccine will be advised to have a booster with an mRNA vaccine in the future? Yeah, that's an in interesting question, Helena. And in fact, so-called mix and match studies are underway. Uh, we have preliminary data from one of those studies uh, done in the UK where they started with a uh, adenovirus vectored vaccine, then boosted with mRNA, worked beautifully at the price of a little more reactogenicity, you know, fever, sore arm, not feeling well for a day. Um, and I suspect we'll see that as time goes on and as the Delta variant uh, catches hold. But we there is no such recommendation at the current time. All right, here's my last listener question of the day for you today, Greg. Children who have not received uh, vaccinations in the past um, for various reasons, if they were to receive the COVID uh, vaccine, would they have a higher risk of having a reaction to the vaccine than would a child who's been getting their regular series of vaccinations? We, we don't have any data to suggest that. I, I personally would not have any concern over that. I wouldn't hesitate to get a COVID vaccine because of that you know, unfortunate situation. Mm -hmm. I would say in addition to COVID, you wanna catch up on those vaccines. We're seeing small resurgences 
of some of these uh, diseases as we open up. And because of the last year, a lot of children fell behind on their childhood immunization. So there's a lot of catch up to be done. You certainly don't want to have a kid go to school this year, not protected against pneumococcal disease, influenza, measles, and now COVID. That could be a very deadly combination. So uh, we work very hard on trying to get that message out. I know the pediatricians and family doctors are working hard to catch kids back up on their immunizations. Well, that is all the questions that I have for you. Do you have any last words of wisdom for us today, Greg? I, I really think this exponential rise in the number of sequences that are Delta must be taken seriously. We do not want to get into the situation that we're now seeing in the UK, where they're having a third surge. And I, I'm very worried about that because I think emotionally, we all are ready for this to be over and done with. But it's not. It's just not. We're seeing very low levels of circulation right now. But as, this, as we move through the summer, remember we saw low levels last summer, only to surge again in the fall. The difference this fall is we may be facing a variant over 100% more transmissible than the original virus. Hmm. I was so, thinking, Greg, how difficult it would be if we had to go back. Oh. to everyone masking and to all of the, the precautions, because I feel like the world has sort of uh, opened up and people are now traveling at higher numbers and um, you're out and about and you see that people aren't wearing masks uh, in areas where they're no longer mandated. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, I think that's appropriate for people who have been fully vaccinated, at least right now, based on the caseload. The risk for all of us is this very large group of people who have not yet been vaccinated and who uh, represent a risk of further of getting infected and further mutations into a more and more dangerous virus. This is the kind of thing that prolongs these pandemics. Our thanks to Dr. Greg Poland for being with us again today to update us on COVID-19 and answer some listener questions. You still have time to get vaccinated before July 4th, uh, so get out there and do it. And thanks to each of you who send us your listener, who send us your questions and your comments. Uh, so much appreciated. I hope Thank that you, you learned something today. I know that I did, and we wish each of you a very wonderful day. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org, then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu.